Hello, Scuttlebutt listeners. I am William. We're here today with Nancy. Hi, everyone. And our guest today is Andy Biggio, author of The Rifle. Andy, how are you? Awesome, guys. Welcome, well, Andy. Thanks Welcome. for having me. I'm, uh, you know, I do a lot of podcasts, but to be um, in the uh, branch of service that, you know, raised me to the elevation, I'm uh, able to give back to veterans as the Marine Corps, obviously. So I'm awesome to be on this podcast and can't wait to share my story. So, well, I, I told William earlier that I was going to really try not to act like a total fangirl because I read this, I, I read this book this summer and just could not put it down. Such a great collection of stories of an amazing group of veterans. And I love the way you put it together. So I cannot wait to nerd out and have a book club session here and talk awesome. about this. Yeah. And I'm working on volume two with a bunch of other good Marines too. So. Oh, perfect. Yeah. I, mm -hmm. I was the same with Nancy. I mean, usually it takes me about a couple of weeks to read and I read multiple books at once, but this one, I read one book and finished it in three or four sessions. It was, it was very hard to put down. So I commend you for, for your wonderful work, but for our audience sake, do you mind just giving us a brief introduction, who you are, uh, how'd you get in the Marine Corps, where your service took you, and then how do you got here today? Sure. Um, you know, I was born and raised in Boston, Massachusetts, my whole life. And uh, Boston is a Marine city all day long. Um, ton of Marines here. But um, <clears throat> both of my brother, uh, both of my grandfathers each had a brother killed in World War II. So um, my mom's dad and my dad's dad each had a brother killed in World War II. And so I, I grew up always knowing about my uncles that were killed and and so on and so forth. And in the town of Winthrop, Massachusetts, we have Andrew Biggio Square. So here in, in Boston, we name the intersections after those uh, who have been killed in action. Of course, there's a ton of them from World War II, but we do it for Vietnam, Korea, and, and the current wars that just passed. So there was always an Andrew Biggio Square in the town of Winthrop, Massachusetts. And <clears throat> people would, I'd always grow up and people would say, oh, there's your square, there's your square, there's your name. And I kind of brushed it off or thought it was a funny joke, but I guess I didn't really know um, the price someone paid to have Andrew Biggio on there on a street sign on a town square. And so after 9-11, it came uh, evident that I wanted to join the, the Marine Corps. Uh, I went to boot camp in 2006 uh, at Paris Island, uh, graduated and uh, joined the Marine Corps Reserve, went to college and soon enough got activated for Operation Iraqi Freedom. I uh, deployed to Iraq in 2008. I served in Iraq with 2nd Battalion, 25th Marines out of New York City. And my first deployment in Iraq was all FDNY firefighters and cops and guys that were in the Marine Corps Reserve from New York and that were first responders on 9-11. And it was like being in a movie. I was with all these guys that were there and had experienced um, the September 11 um, terrorism attacks, not just cops and firefighters. These guys were doctors, lawyers, guys who really were just patriotic after 9-11 and joined the Marine Corps Reserve because they had these careers going on. And uh, I, too, also followed and was a police officer um, here in Massachusetts. So um, I deployed to Iraq um, almost about nine months uh, as an 0311 infantry rifleman. Uh, came home, finished college, then deployed again to Afghanistan, this time with 1st Battalion, 25th Marines right here out of Boston, Massachusetts. So it's funny because now that I'm a cop here, you know, we see each other on the street corners every day. Like, yeah, I was in Iraq with him. I was in Afghanistan with him. Because, again, everyone's cops, firefighters, work in the business district. You know, we see each other all the time. Um, 
coming home from those deployments, again, that, that Andrew Biggio Square street sign was still there. And to see my own name on that street sign, I started to you know, ask myself about the price of war and what happened to that Andrew Biggio that didn't happen to me. And that's where the journey started, so. Wow. Okay. So just, just to re, um, reiterate for our read, our listeners, rather, we're talking about your book, The Rifle. And um, so <clears throat> I already mentioned that when I started the book, I picked it up like William, just couldn't put it down. Um, and what I want to say is I especially loved how through the book, you were the conduit for the veterans to tell their stories. You didn't make it about you at all, except how the meeting with each one of those veterans impacted and affected you and gave you the drive to keep going. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? And is that how you started out doing the project? Yeah, so um, my grandmother had told me that Andrew Biggio had written letters home before he was killed in action, right? So um, I started to read, before I connected with these veterans, these World War II veterans, I started to read his letters home that he wrote home. And it was just like this young 19 year old, little angry infantryman writing the same letters that I was kind of writing home from Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, uh, you know, I'm out in the field, I'm living in dirt holes. You know, there's other guys back on bases, taking nice showers. Like he was writing the same exact letters 80 years ago, 78 years ago. Uh, he was really, bitter about you know the soldiers that were stationed right in rome you know because he was killed in italy actually i you know i didn't mention that but he was killed in italy so i started reading all of his letters he wrote home and the first letter he wrote was how much he enjoyed the m1 grand rifle so i went out and purchased this rifle i, I put the letter down immediately i had to go purchase an m1 grand rifle i wanted to hold what he held feel what he felt and i did that and then that that feeling only lasted so long before i you know, going back to your question, I realized my neighbor had fought in the Battle of Okinawa, Joe Drago. He was with the 6th Marine Division, which doesn't exist anymore, but he served with I Company 22nd Regiment, 6th Marine Division. So I brought the rifle to him. I knocked on his door, walked in, saw him sitting on a recliner, you know, lonely. Is He's 92 years old at the time, and I put the rifle into his hands. And that's what sparked like my connection to these world war ii veterans is putting that rifle in his hand seeing this 92 year old man act in a fashion i'd never seen before put the rifle in his shoulder aim in wave it around and start talking about the battle of okinawa and it was with joe you know going going back to your question how i was able to like basically mold to these guys and it was just joe started talking about the battle of Okinawa and how like war wasn't just black and white. Right. Cause I feel like I went to Iraq and Afghanistan, but I still felt like I was living in the shadows of world war II veterans because they fought in what's what we, uh, you know, basically describe as the best war of all time. Right. It was good versus evil. It was okay to kill, you know, civilians as long as we won the war and got rid of Nazism and Imperial Japan it was okay to, you know, war crimes were virtually not, I know, I'm, I know I'm rambling on, but. That was, Joe, yeah, it was a totally different time, different attitude from the public. So Joe made me feel normal, right? Joe made me feel good. Like, you know, he was saying, you know, 
war is not always black and white. We did the greatest generation did some not so great things to win World War II, and the things that we did would um, get us in hot water or dishonorable discharges. You know, and, and in particular, you know, it's no secret everyone knows what the Pacific War was like. Guys were collecting, you know, skulls, and guys were collecting, uh, you know, Japanese gold teeth and stuff that would put guys in jail today, they did on a regular basis. And here's this old man. And I never thought I'd, by putting that rifle in his hand, I never thought that we'd be connecting like this, where he's telling me, be proud of who you are, be proud of the wars you served. And you didn't get to choose the conflict. We just happened to be at the right time in the right place. And so when I left his house, I said, sign your name on this rifle. I always want to remember this moment, this therapeutic moment of me sitting with you and you telling me, good job boy you know and can you sign your name on my rifle i always want to remember that and he did he signed his name on my rifle and when i left his house i said that was awesome and i want to get as many signatures as possible and now here i am over 300 names on the rifle that's so cool and this started obviously in 2016 over 300 names and stories just like Joe's featured on this rifle from the bayonet on down, literally a solid 300 guys and girls. That's amazing. And I'll never forget Joe because he's right there. <clears throat> Joe Drago, 6th Marine Division, Battle of Okinawa, April Fool's Day, 1945. So I know that was a, a long answer, but that's how I was able to mesh with these guys. Well, now you can't take that M1 out to the range anymore. Do you need to go pick up another one? Or are you going to start signing I, that one too? If I'll have to get a second family if I start uh, getting a, a new rifle signed. It's been a long journey, so... So you mentioned earlier that like, uh, like a lot of mainstream media and, and the... Um, and movies and, and cinemas and films and such have really painted World War II as like the good war, the greatest generation. Um, do you, A, do you feel like that distortion is, is holding true? Do you feel like there's an effort to change it? And where do you feel like your book fits in in trying to, to uh, understore how, like the, the historical facts behind the nature of World War II? So, you know, she was right when she said you didn't you didn't want to talk about yourself. You didn't want to uh, make it about you. And and that was so true. So true. I said, I want don't want this about me. I didn't do anything crazy or heroic. And my agent was like and my agent is a retired Marine major, um, Scott Husing, who wrote the book Echo and Ramadi. And he said, you need to interdict yourself a little bit more in this book. Right. And he and I thought to myself. Yes, what's going to make my book different than every other World War II book written out there? So we're talking millions of books, right? What's Andrew Vigil's book going to be different? And I had to do that by putting a little bit of myself in that book to compare my wars with their wars, to compare the advice they were giving me. And, and so mine, so my book is a message to the younger generation of veterans to say, you can live a long, successful life after combat as these men did. You don't have to feel ashamed of serving here and doing this um, because these guys did the same exact thing. War is not black and white. These guys, you know, the carpet bombing of major cities, they're driving around with a Japanese skull attached to the, the hood of your Jeep, you know, things that 
you know, and Joe thought, and, and again, like I said, I'm not condoning any type of uh, battlefield rituals or war crimes, but Joe th literally thought um, when the Marines urinated on dead Taliban back in 2011 or 12, he thought that was a joke because it was nothing compared to what they used to do to their Japanese enemy, you know, and you sit back and you say, these guys, these World War II guys are just regular people too. And that's what I was striving, you know, it, it, you know, where my book falls in history is you have the youngest generation of veterans, me, saying goodbye to the oldest generation of veterans and what to take away from them. And that you do not see in a lot of World War II books. Well, and, and honestly, touching on that, I think that's the thing that, that just, you know, not to go off on a rant here, but I think that's a thing that's missing from society today in general is the younger generation seeking the advice and experience of the older generation. Again, not bashing the younger generation here, but it's it's not it's not um, as common as it was when I was a kid, for example. Um, you know, and, and I think I think maybe that's that's a sad thing to be missing. And I think that one of the things I've noticed since I've been with Leatherneck in the last 15 years is that Marines are very different that way in that they do respect, admire, and study what those who came before them did, achieved, and went through. Yeah, and and I agree. Marine Corps history is there's something different about it. Um, but I think a lot of post-9-11 veterans really when they stand next to a World War II veteran, they say, well, I'm nothing compared to this guy, or I didn't do anything compared to this guy. And sure, that's, and I believe that too. I, there's, a, there's a part of me that definitely believes that. But at the same time, you got to remember that you answered the call, you had your Pearl Harbor, which was 9-11, and you would have, if it came to it, fought in the same war they did. But now, in this book, these men are going to tell you the little secrets that you didn't know, that, you know, World War II wasn't just swing dancing milkshake drinking and people not swearing um here's the true heart you know here's the true story and they just happen to have both political parties behind them uh with one mission and that was to defeat you know nazism and um the empire of japan so. well and one of the other things um that i that i wanted to ask you about is a lot of the veterans you spoke to were sharing their stories with somebody for the first time. And with so many of them, it had to be in the back of your mind that you were going to be, they were going to be telling these stories for the last time, you know, um, be, not to be crass, but just the reality of their ages. So when someone trusts you, to tell their story, that's a that's an incredibly sacred thing. Um, how how did how did that did that impact you right away? Did you know that right away, or is it something that you came to realize along the way? And how did you feel about that? Um, it gave me some sleepless nights, actually. You know, um, I wanted to tell their story right and do it the right way. That was the only thing that meant meant that mattered to me. And I know some authors and some movie producers don't care. They want to do whatever looks good in Hollywood, whatever looks good on paper. I wrote their whole chapters. I then mailed them the chapters and let them proofread it with pencil or pen and then have them mail it back to me. So I'm telling it exactly how they remembered it and how they recalled it. No if and buts about it. 
I didn't care if I made a single dollar on the book or if it did well. My loyalty was to their story and their legacy and what was truth and what they could remember. <clears throat> and so that was a ton of pressure. You know, I think um, I remember when my I woke up in the middle of the night one time because I remembered actually I was staring at my rifle and I had written a story about a Japanese American who fought in Italy and he got three bronze stars, three purple hearts. He was part of the 442nd regimental combat team, the most highly decorated infantry regiment of all time. And they were, you know, um, Japanese Americans recruited from um, internment camps, uh, tested to fight in Italy, right? Because they weren't going to be using the Pacific where they could be confused with the enemy. They weren't going to, you know, the government was trying to see where the Japanese American loyalty was. So they created this experimental infantry regiment to use in Italy and it ended up being um, a total success. And General Mark Clark wanted more Japanese Americans because of how great soldiers they were. And I remember writing Lost in Sakai was in Company L of the 442nd Regimental Combat Team in the book printed. Then I was looking at my rifle like a few days before my book was supposed to come out and he signed my rifle Lost in Sakai Company I, not Company L. And I said, oh no, do not tell me this book just got printed but the wrong company, you know, and it did. The first, the first edition has Company I, but I was able to make that correction, but that killed me to the point where I wanted to reach out, write letters to the family, say, I'm so sorry, just for a simple alphabet letter. Wrong, you know, um, and I was able to fix that, but that's the kind of pressure I was under because I want to be factual. I know other historians were going to judge me. I knew other authors were going to read my book and pick it apart. I knew this was going to be, and you know, it's been awesome because I've had other big, big name New York Times bestselling authors reach out to me and say, wow, man, you really killed it. This is going to be known to be one of the last good uh, firsthand experience veteran books out there. It's incredible. Do you feel that your uh, experience as a, as, as a veteran yourself helped your interviewees open up uh, more? Totally. At 100%. Um, because... You know, I had people say, listen, my father was an ex-prisoner of war. He'll meet with you, but I doubt he's going to talk to you. He doesn't talk to anybody. And I said, that's fine. I just want him to sign my rifle and that's it. But when I finally got in front of him, I, I put him on a guilt trip. And I said, sir, I know you don't really want to talk about it. I, don't want, I know you don't want to tell your story, but I got to tell you and I got to be honest with you. Don't do that to us. Us being the new generation of veterans we're in our 20s and 30s we're coming home we're trying to start families have careers go to college get work we need to know and expect what's going to happen to us we need to know how to live a successful life we have to need to know that our demons are going to be part our scars are going to be part of our lives please i beg of you share your story there's a young veteran out there that needs to hear it because some guys are, are falling through the cracks when they come home or when they just peak at military service we need to know to keep going, you know, we need to keep going. And I guilted them into telling their own stories as much as they've gone their whole lives without telling it. And they did that worked being a veteran worked. <clears throat> so how would you, I guess, how would a, would you, I guess maybe made up an able answers question, but how should a civilian approach if they have an older veteran or a more, more newer veteran from some of the recent conflicts? Um, they're like an inability to open up or should they, or what, what are your thoughts? So I do have people reach out to me all the time. Um, especially on Instagram, 
my Instagram has brought in so many like 15 year olds, 16, 17, eight year old, 18 year olds, definitely civilians, obviously, because their age wondering how they can meet World War II veterans, how they should talk. Do I have any advice? Even the older people that are civilians ask, hey, do you have any advice? I got a neighbor. I, and I always tell them, go to your local nursing home. And obviously before COVID, especially, like, go to your local nursing home. Start playing bingo with these guys. Start playing cards. Visit them. They're just sitting in the corners of these nursing homes. And these guys have stormed Iwo Jima. They did this. They just want a visitor. Most of them outlive their spouses. Some of them even outlive their kids. When they're 100 years old, their kids were late 70s, 80s. That could have gotten cancer or died any other way. And, you know, my advice to them is just simply ask, start with the basics. What division you served with? What unit you served with? Did you serve in Europe? Did you serve in the Pacific? Giving them the attention and showing up to these assisted living homes and nursing homes, the best. There's so many hidden stories and great stories at your local nursing home and people don't, people don't get it. People like to take and poach and chase veterans. They see plastered on Facebook or Instagram, right? So they, they consider it research. Like, Oh, I saw this guy. It's his hundredth birthday. He's on Facebook and 70,000 people liked it because he's, he's wishing him a hundred birthday. And I'm going to try to interview him. That's the wrong way to go about it. There is gems, complete gems sitting at your local nursing home that people don't realize. And that's my advice to them is to go to those places. With, with uh, all of your research and talking to veterans and learning these stories and then sharing them with others, what, what has, how has it changed you? Um, you know, these guys taught me how to be, uh, not just a good vet, right? So they taught me how to be a good husband, good grandfather, a good father, um, and a listener, a good listener. Um, and I think that's brought, it's made me an old soul for sure. You know, um, I don't judge right away. I, I, it, it's one thing it's definitely taught me taught me a lot about elderly services, right? Guys living on their own, using meals on wheels just to survive every day, having food delivered, having, um, you know, degenerate uh, younger relatives who just take, take, take from them or um, outliving a wife and knowing it's like after being married to a partner for 78 years, 77 years, 80 years, and now they're not in your home anymore. Um, and what you do after losing your wife for that long and how you move on, how you honor your, your wife after so long. I mean, God, I, I, at 300 of these instances, I've met these people who've done this and it's just so impressive on life after uh, giving birth, right? To generations, great grandchildren, great, great grandchildren, grandchildren, your kids, these men have lived, you know, eight, decades uh excuse me no a hundred years old eight decades of uh i guess what i'm saying is of, of since the war yeah. since the war you know 78 years the 78th anniversary of the battle of the bulge is coming up um which would also be the 78 you know anniversary in february of iwo jima so that that's just they've taught me so much and and kind of what to expect when i get up there in those ages you know, on, on what I'm going to plan my future to be like for my family. 
reading the book that you have had experiences where you talk to a veteran who whose children didn't even know their father or grandfather's war story. And so, you know, they were learning it for the first time as a result of you. And, you know, they were, they were, I don't know if happy is the right word, but they were, they were pleased to finally be learning this, to get this little missing piece of the jigsaw puzzle. So can you, can you talk, talk at all about any of those experiences or what your thoughts were about that? Yeah. Um, in particular, you know, I remember this one lady telling me like, yeah, I knew, I knew my father was in a prisoner of war, but I never knew how he got caught. And it wasn't until you put that rifle in his hands that I realized it was that bad. And she was talking about like, after her dad had been captured in the battle of the bulge, the Germans uh, forced them all on train cars, box cars of a train. And the, the train was destined, you know, for Germany. And two American uh, P-47 pilots had saw this train heading to Germany. And of course they started strafing it. And little did they know they were sh killing and shooting their own prisoners of war, their own American POWs that were stuffed inside this train. And her father was telling me the story of being trapped in the boxcar and trying to get out. And he's crying his eyes out at age 96, telling me the story. And that when he finally got out, all the Americans threw themselves on the ground and with their bodies, they formed the letters P O W. So when the, 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 the planes were making their third round to start strafing, they were coming in on the, the dive and they saw the, the human bodies that's at POW and they bailed out and they pulled out last second. They know realized they were killing their own guys. And he told me the story crying his eyes out at age 96. And I had never seen a man of, uh, that old cry. And it kind of, you know, actually devastated me at the moment. And his daughter grabbed me in the hallway and said, I never heard my father tell that story. And so when that's what actually sparked me to write the book, because I, I started off as just collecting signatures to have a cool trophy piece in my man cave. And then I realized if his own daughter doesn't know that story, how many people in this country don't know that story? And I had to put pen to paper at that point. So what was your, your, when you, when you got into the rhythm of uh, interviewing people, what was your process from, from initial contact to then eventually you're getting responses from them editing the story? Um, you know, my original thing was, you know, especially as an Iraq and Afghanistan veteran, um, you were looked down upon if you talked about it, if you uh, threw yourself on the news as soon as you got home or put yourself in front of a camera it was like, dude, you didn't do anything. You didn't get a medal of honor. Shut the hell up. You didn't do shit. So don't um, talk to cameras like you're a war hero. So what I would do is ask veterans just to sign my rifle. And then I would <clears throat> hit record on my iPhone and just kind of sit it on the kitchen table and see what they had to say. And I would do most of my initial interviews and chapter writing of my book from audio. Then I got a little bit more courage and I started holding my phone like this as I was talking to them. And then I got even more courage and I would set up a, you know, a Canon camera five, you know, uh, Mark five V I forget the model I have, but, and then I was doing professional interviews for the most part at that point. And it came to the point where, you know, they're at the age where they don't want to die with their secrets, I feel like, and they've actually openly accepted having a camera in their face. Um, they have no one to answer to, you know, there's like nobody around from their division, their company or the, or their unit to criticize them. So why not tell the story? 
So that's to, incredible. And to what extent was the rifle itself like a big, um, I guess, uh, pr provocation for them to actually open up to you? The rifle definitely acted like a microphone. Um, and, you know, because sometimes I'd put the rifle in their hand and then they were like, wow, yeah, you know, you know, I actually didn't have this. I was actually a machine, a water cooled machine gunner. And they would start telling me all about the um, Browning automatic weapons that they used during the war or as they were a BAR man or held a carbine because they were a radio man. So even if they didn't carry the M1 Grand, which most of them did that I put in their hands or they at least shot it at, at basic training, um, they started telling me what weapons they did have. Well, well, actually, I was a tanker. I was in a tank. So it's like wow, tell me about the tanks, you know, tell me about uh, the Browning automatic weapon. Tell me about a flamethrower, Woody, you know, so. <laughs> That's a perfect segue to my next question. So it, it just so happened, it was an odd coincidence that I read the chapter about Woody Williams just before he died. And um, I mean, what an incredible man, what an incredible Marine, what an amazing story. How did you go about approaching him to write the foreword for the book? Um, so I would say Woody, um, Woody was basically, I had, I was actually hosting a, uh, a motorcycle charity run for uh, a couple of wounded veterans in Iraq and Afghanistan that had came home back to Boston. And um I had written to Woody originally to ask if he'd be a guest speaker at that event that I had a couple of Marines that were severely wounded in Afghanistan. Would you be interested if I paid for your plane ticket to come up to Boston and be a guest speaker in front of 5,000 people? Um, I was hosting a motorcycle charity ride to raise money to, for housing modifications, to buy these guys brand new cars. It was something I always did before the rifle project was helping my own generation. Um, and he came up, Woody came up and I remember grabbing him in the hotel lobby and putting that rifle in his hands. And he looked at it, looked at all the signatures on there. And it was, I'm like, and I said, I'm telling their story. And he signed the rifle. And the first thing he noticed was I didn't, um, it looks like I froze, I think. Yeah. You froze there for a second. So it looks like um, he had originally told me that his brother also fought in World War II. He never knew what unit or how he was injured or what division was in, what he was in. So I started doing research on his brother that was actually severely wounded with the 79th Division after he had landed on Utah Beach. And Woody never knew it, never knew the division his brother was with. And I made a shadow box for his brother, um, who was Gerald Williams. And I presented it to Woody at his house in West Virginia and asked if he'd be interested in writing the forward to my book. And he, there was no question after doing that for him. He was like, you're my unofficial grandchild. Absolutely. I'll write the forward. What, a, what an incredible experience. So one thing I, I liked about your book in particular is that you go out of your way to try to uh, diversify your interviewees, not just by unit or theater or, or, or battles they fought in, but also, you know, where they're from geographically in the States, ethnic and racial diversity. Is there any demographic that you feel like you try to strive for that you were not able to, to, to try to tie down and get an interview for? 
Um, I guess, so I made sure I hit the, um, on the rifle itself, I wanted to represent the whole war, right? So I had women who served in the nurse corps. I had black African-Americans who served as the first black armored unit to enter combat ever in the history of the United States military. I had the Japanese Americans who fought in Italy. I had the Navajo code talkers. Um, but what I thought was interesting. So as far as writing a boat, I missed out on getting a good female story as a nurse in, um, and so that's in volume two, I'm going to strive for that. But I had a great story about um, Curtis Robert Andrew, who was a African-American uh, tank uh, bow gunner. I mean, amazing story, severely wounded, injured, purple heart, comes home, still bandaged, bandaged up on crutches. And they're still refusing to give the guy a train ride, still making him to sit at the back of the bus after sacrificing all of that for his country. Um you know, the, the Japanese Americans, even though Japan attacked America, were getting treated better than, than he was. <clears throat> and I, and I wrote about that in my book. Um, but what I missed was there was 12 different dialects of native American languages actually spoken in world war II. but the Navajo code talkers actually get the most, um, recognition. Uh, why? Because they were Marines. <laughs> because Marines know how to market themselves. The Marine Corps is awesome with propaganda. The Marine Corps is a brilliant on getting getting attention. So the Navajo were the Marines. But I actually got to meet uh, a Mohawk co-talker who spoke the Mohawk language. And they were from the Mohawk Reservation uh, up on the New York-Canadian border. And so uh, I got to actually speak with him. And so on my next book, I'm hoping to, to hit a good uh, female nurse story and maybe talk about a different dialect of um, Native American language spoken. Oh, that would be really cool. That would be very cool. Well, so let's talk a little bit about the M1 itself. Did you get a chance to fire that rifle before you started collecting signatures? I actually fired it after I had finished and wrote my first book, believe it or not. I had bought it started getting signatures on it and i said well i can't shoot it now because i'll start fading the signatures or melting them off the barrel so right. i didn't it wasn't until the civilian marksmanship program invited me to uh camp talladega to sign books for a competition they were doing that i actually got out there on the range and fired the m1 grand for the first time what'd you think of it awesome yeah. I was i was i was bullseyeing on my you know first time and General Patton says that's the weapon that won the war. And man, I mean, you could recruit any kid off the street in, in the United States, put that in his shoulder, and he should be able to shoot, hit his target. So I, uh, I, I've told this story on this podcast before, but the first time I fired it, my husband bought one years ago through the civilian marksmanship program, and I wouldn't touch it. I was like, no, 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 I can't, you know, I'm 5'3. Like, there's no way I'm going to be able to fire that rifle. And finally, one day, my son said to me, Mom, you work at Leatherneck Magazine. You need to be ashamed of yourself for not firing <laughs> this rifle. And he's like, sit down and fire the rifle. And I couldn't believe what a, how smooth it was, what a great rifle it was to fire. I um, know it. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, and that, what do you, sorry, William, go ahead. No, you're, you're, continue. No, I was just going to ask, so what are you going to do with that M1 now that you've got it? 
filled with signatures or when you're when you when there's no more room at all what are you going to do with that after book two and after i'm done promoting these guys legacies and doing my speeches i want it to be on display at a museum um even if it's the marine corps museum the national world war ii museum it needs to be on display telling these men and women's story behind it uh, you know, as it spins around in the case, it just absolutely has to. And I won't, I won't settle unless it's a well-known museum that promises to, to display it. So uh, you've, you've hinted at this a few times. Uh, so now I, I, I'm, I'm going to go into it. So volume two, tell us, tell us what we uh, could potentially expect from this. Volume two um, is going to be what the readers have of volume one have been wanting is more stories, definitely more combat stories, more stories of valor. You've got it. We're going to, we're going to have that, but I'm going to throw a different spin on it. Um, there's going to be stories about going back me bringing these world war II veterans back for the first time in 75 years to their combat zones. The first time to where they were wounded, the first time to where they were captured, the first time where they lost buddies. There's also going to be stories of stolen valor guys who lied to me guys who uh had tricked me in believing to their story up until the last minute up until the day they were put in a casket and passed away um there's gonna be um uh like you said different demographics to hit um of of what people didn't know what helped us win the war that uh is not promoted a lot in movies and other world war ii books so i'm looking forward to reading that so you have 300 uh, signatures on the rifle or over 300 signatures. Um, is there a plan to eventually at some point release all 300 plus stories in some capacity one way or another? So I think in volume two, um, we'll have all 300 names listed, their units, their divisions, and their campaigns. Um, some of the veterans who signed my rifle had complete dementia, but luckily I had their DD-214 to obviously back up who they were and what they did. So I'll never be able to truly tell their full story. But um, Volume 2 is going to have a full roster of each veteran that signed signed the rifle. So, And, and, how, I, and how, I guess, how was it in terms of, of dealing with that memory loss? Were they still able, did they, were they cognizant of their service or... Definitely. You know, one thing I noticed of even if they didn't know who I was or in the room or even their own daughter's name or son's name, if you said what division or what branch you served with and oh, yeah, you bet you bet Marines came out of their mouth. If uh, it, even if they had Alzheimer's, it was remarkable. They never forget that. And do you have any plans for any of the uh, audio or visual uh, recordings uh, that, you, that you took? You know, I. I'm not a big um, editor as far as movies and interviews go. I'm not a good YouTuber, but yeah, I gotta, I'd love to donate it all to the Veterans History Project. Most likely, I think it should go. So That's a great idea. That's a great um, resource for that kind of thing. Um, so to shift gears a little bit, um, can you mentioned a couple of times your charity. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? Sure. I, I run an organization known as the Boston's Wounded Vet Run. Um, those in uh, Boston who ride motorcycles definitely know it. Uh, it came out to be one of the biggest um, wounded veteran charities in Boston. Um, we all get together every May, um, thousands of us, and we ride in a parade formation. And each motorcyclist, each biker pays money to uh, donate 
to severely wounded veterans. So this year I'm helping six of the Marines that were severely wounded at the Kabul airport. Oh, wow. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Well, much appreciation for all, all the effort yeah. you do. So if someone's Thank looking you. for your book because it's the holiday season, all of our dear listeners are going to buy this for all their friends and family. Uh, where can they find it? Just look up the rifle on Amazon and you will get it in a day's notice. But we have the paperback version and uh, she's holding the hardcover. Yep. Got a and, tab. <laughs> and if you mail it to me, I'll sign it for you for free. No problem. That's mm -hmm. awesome. Oh, that, yeah. that's awesome. Well, William, do you have any other questions? Uh, I'm about set. Hopefully okay. Well, we I've got on the, one. Uh, Commandant's reading list uh, one day. So that would be yeah, perfect. Cool. I've got one more question, and this is something we, we like to close out our interviews with. What was your best day in the Marine Corps? Wow. Honestly, the best day in the Marine Corps is was when I've handed an Iraqi child a clean bottle of water. Um, just seeing their faces light up, hand them water and food, and I just said that, that is going to be the this, I don't care what goes on any day after my life. I'll never forget what, how excited they were over, over clean water or food. And it made me really think about comparing the kids in this country um, who would get excited if I hand them an Xbox compared to a, a bottle of water. So that was the best day for me. Wow, that, that's, uh, that has an impact. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Well, is there anything else that we did not ask you or that you want to talk about that we didn't touch upon? No, I think we really got my mission out there and I appreciate it and uh, Semper Fi. So. Awesome. Well, thanks for being on the show with us and make sure you keep Leatherneck posted and, um, you know, let us know what you're up to. And we'd love to publish photos of your uh, your charity group and what, what you're up to. And yeah, just stay in touch. We'd love to talk to you again. We're excited for that second book. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Have a good night. Bye. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am William Truding, but you've also heard the voices or contributions of Vic Rubel, USMC Retired, Nancy Lichman, or Ty Frazier. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the official stance of the Marine Corps, DOD, or Marine Corps Association.